107.7, 1077thebronc.com, proudly nominated for a 2019 and 2021 National Association of Broadcasters Marconi Award for College Radio Station of the Year, and broadcasting live from the Bronx all-new digital broadcast studios, welcome you to Your Pet Matters with Dr. Michael Tequila. Sit down, grab a blanket, and snuggle up with your furry family, because it's time for Your Pet Matters with Dr. T of Progressive Veterinary Care, where Dr. Michael Tequila will discuss everything you need to know to keep your fuzzy friends happy, healthy, and safe. Your Pet Matters is underwritten by Progressive Veterinary Care, 390 County Road, Route 518, Skillman. For more information online, it's ProgressiveVeterinaryCare.com. Here he is now, only on 107.7 The Brunk. Good morning and welcome to Your Pet Matters. I'm your host, Michael Dr. T. Tequila, and I am, I'm very stoked because um, uh, Christopher and I have been trying to connect um, and, and get together so we could actually talk about um, a lot of things that, that he's been up to. Uh, so, so without further ado, let me introduce my guest. is Christopher Byers. He's a double-boarded. Um, criticalist and uh, internal medicine specialist, as well as he's a certified veterinary journalist. And through all that, he, he works. So he's practicing medicine um, in the clinics, as well as writing, speaking, blogging, vlogging, you name it. And, and I, I get tons of these uh, educational little blurbs out there. The occasional discussion about the fires in Australia. <laughs> so we can sure. go into that. Yeah, so real world things as well, but a lot of uh, great veterinary medical education knowledge that it, a lot of it is geared towards um, both the pet owner and people like myself or specialists as well. So it's, it's, it's a great blend. It, it blends very well with this show because that's what we're all about. We're all about pets, we're all about vets. And so, um, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show, and uh, and let's get to it because I am dying to know why you went double boarded. <laughs> oh man, that journey is long. So uh, I'm 42 now, and I knew I was going to be a veterinarian since I was five. Okay. I don't, yep. I don't know how else to describe it. Calling, feeling. I just knew I was going to be a vet, and that started at five. But at five, I was going to be a dinosaur veterinarian, and I was going to specialize in the stegosaurus. <laughs> and then my parents taught me about extinction, and those dreams were thwarted. Were they thwarted at five years of age, or were they thwarted later on? Uh, I don't think I want to answer that question. <laughs> I held on to it for a while, uh, and then ultimately I said, you know what, I also have this deep fascination with space. And ah, so yeah. I wanted to become an astronaut, but a veterinary astronaut. I wanted to be the first veterinarian in space, and then one of our colleagues stole that dream from me too. Uh, <laughs> aboard Shuttle Columbia in 1993, I believe. Uh, so, oh well, had to find something else to do. And I ultimately fell in love with emergency and critical care. I was that guy in my veterinary class who everybody knew wanted to do emergency and critical care. I did not plan on doing small animal internal medicine. I ah. liked it, but I never planned on doing it until a medicine rotation where one of 
the faculty who I obviously admired a lot said, okay, buyers, we know you're the critical care guy, but I just wanted to let you know you're, you're pretty good at internal medicine and you should consider doing a residency. And of course, this is somebody that I admired and he's telling me, you should do a medicine residency. And literally I was, okay, I'm gonna do a medicine residency. And so there were only a couple of programs in existence at that time, way back when, where you could do both of the residencies concurrently. So I had six years crammed into a four-year program. Uh, three of those four years were associated with some type of board exam, and I survived. <laughs> How much sleep did you get? Not a lot, <laughs> but I, uh, I'm glad I chose them. If I'm being completely honest, I don't know if I still would have chosen internal medicine because I have fallen so much in love with critical anesthesia that uh, yeah. an anesthesia residency um, at some point sounded fantastic. And in terms of topics in critical care and medicine i fall i fall and i fell in love with hematology and immunology so i thought about doing a phd in those fields and so would i go back and just do critical care and a phd would i do critical care and anesthesia would i do the same thing i did now i don't know how to answer that question i just know i'm happy where i am and i'm a perpetual geek and nerd and just love continuing to learn. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it with, um, with all that, that going on. But, but for the young vets, so for the vets that are in vet school right now who, who are thinking of going down the, the specialty route, like how would you, when I talk to anesthesiologists and I talk to criticalists, I, I, it's, it's really tough for me to put it all in a synopsis to, to describe the different, you said you're drawn towards the anesthesia, but you're a criticalist. Like, if you had to describe to a first-year vet student and, and they were deciding which role to go, what, what, what sort of future um, opportunities would there be for them and what, what sort of role do you play? Because I, I always look at it as critical as this. It's your, it's your job to bring in – if it's an emergency situation, you're there to keep that pet alive, so to speak. But it's also your role to keep that pet alive for anesthesia as well, right? Sure. Right. Um, so, I, I would say as an emergency and critical care specialist – you put your hands in lots of different pots. You will be an emergent dermatologist. You will do critical anesthesia. You'll do surgery. You will manage complex multi-organ metabolic issues. So you're uh, exposed to quite a bit. And so if you like that wide variety to clinical practice, then emergency and critical care would be something to consider. Anesthesiologists are the quintessential and amazing micromanagers of all little things. And I'm perpetually astonished at how they do that so adeptly. They're monitoring seven things at one time and they notice the slightest change 
and they know what to do with that, regardless of species. So to my knowledge, anesthesiologists don't yet differentiate between small animal and large animal the way surgeons do, the way critical care specialists do, the way internal medicine specialists do. So anesthesiology presents another aspect of a wide variety of clinical practice. I think the big difference is an anesthesiologist is going to have more opportunities in academia, whereas a critical care specialist is going to have more opportunities in primary care. Certainly, the vast majority of schools have criticalists on staff, but there aren't as many non-academic positions for anesthesiologists. So uh, if you want to pursue anesthesia, I, I think it's fair to say that you probably should have a love of teaching, working with students, with house officers, interns and residents, and also doing uh, clinical or bench research. I think that is uh, probably a a requisite to, to keep in mind. Certainly in academia, a criticalist has to do all those things as well, but there are many more opportunities, at least my perception is that there are many more opportunities in private practice for criticalists compared to anesthesiologists. No, uh, and I think that's a great synopsis. The, the, only, the only thing that I know in, in my neck of the woods, there's, um two anesthesiologists working with uh, board certified dentists and it's a, it's a unique combination. So I think that that that's working out well, but, um, but, but thanks for clarifying that. You, you not only clarified that, I think for the students, you also clarified that for me because it's like, it's like, you know, the criticalist, I know it, it, it's funny. It's funny how we perceive what role each of us do in this profession. And then, you know, to see that just whole different avenues that we all go down. I mean, I entered the profession simply because I could be a Jack of all trades. Sure. And then, now that just expands. I used to tell the young students in my class, I said, the world is your oyster, right? It's like one of those things, but every step we go, the world is your oyster. And there's lots of opportunities there. So thanks for clarifying that. I really appreciate it. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, and for the students again, why don't we talk uh, in, in this respect? Clearly, you're a very smart guy to, to double board and, and, and uh, I think that's phenomenal. Did you, did you get where you needed to go on your first attempt? I did. I, 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 I can't answer that disingenuously. I, I set my mind to do it. I was going to be a vet. I became a vet. I was going to do an internship. I did an internship. I was going to do a residency. I did two. I passed both on the first go-round for each. I've been very lucky. I've been very blessed to uh, get where I wanted to be when I wanted to be there. Do I have a couple of regrets? Absolutely. Uh, I would go back and take a little bit more time before entering vet school. I don't know if you remember the program Up With People that uh, was a theater group, for lack of a better way of describing it, that used to have troops that traveled the world and performed based on social issues of the time. I wish I had done that between high school and first year of college. Uh, 
I wish I had done semester at sea with one of my best friends still to this day from college when he did it. Would have been an amazing experience to travel around the globe with one of your best mates, but I needed to get to vet school, or at least I felt I needed to get to vet school. So I went a different path and I don't live with regret, but I do wish I had done that, if that makes sense. The reason I say I don't live with regret is I'm very happy with where I am, the relationships that I've made both personally and professionally, and those wouldn't have happened if I took a different path. But still think about, oh, traveling around the world with a buddy in college, what an amazing experience that would have been. Yeah, no, that, 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 you're touching on what I call the veterinary DNA, that drive. We're all driven, right? And yeah. go, go, go. For better or worse. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah, no, I, I, totally, I totally get where you're, where you're coming from. But, but you, I see that you're traveling now, right? You get to travel and speak. And so it's a completely different, you know, what I'm trying to instill in my young son is that it's all experiences. We can't take. We can't take the Nintendo Switch with us when we go, right? right? We, exactly. we can't take our collection of games, but we can definitely take experiences. So, you know, I'm happy that you're able to get those experiences, uh, especially when, when, you're, when you're taking our veterinary approach to a different country and learning from them and, and they get to learn about how we do things. I think that's phenomenal. And I, and I think that's a very important point for everybody, not just our colleagues and uh, in the profession, we should avoid a American-centric view or North American-centric view that everybody can learn from us. Of course, we can learn from each other. And I can't tell you how much I've learned traveling to Asia, traveling to Russia, traveling to various European countries and interacting with our colleagues there, giving presentations to them and vice versa, learning from the things that they have to offer because they do things differently in their part of the veterinary world. And it's just so fun, so amazing. And I feel like a sponge every time I travel to a new locale, whether it's absorbing the local culture or absorbing the new aspects of veterinary medicine to which I've just been exposed. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, I remember speaking with um, uh, a Hong Kong uh, surgeon specialist, and, and when she was traveling around the area, she was saying that it's, it's amazing what people can do with what little they have and the, yeah. and the abilities for these veterinarians. And, and you know, we're, we're lucky here. We're, we're in a very, um, we have a lot of opportunities for equipment and for supplies and for procedures and, and labs and everything like that. And when you get these veterinarians who have the limited amount of things, um, and yet practice at medicine that is par to us. I think that's phenomenal. I think those are... Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. We're a little spoiled in the developed veterinary world. And on one hand, I, I, I love that I get to practice in that because that's where innovation can happen. But let me tell you, and I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, innovation happens in the underdeveloped world as well. And that's just so amazing to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely.
Okay, we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back with our wonderful discussion. The following is an encore presentation of Your Pet Matters with many new shows to come. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Your Pet Matters to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Now, here's a replay of Your Pet Matters with Dr. Michael Takiwa. We're back with Your Pet Matters with Dr. T of Progressive Veterinary Care, discussing everything you need to know to keep your furry friends happy, healthy, and safe. Only on 1077 The Bronx. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm having a wonderful discussion. You know, so so someone in my position, I'm 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 what I, I consider myself a day practitioner. I can do what I can do up to a certain point uh, regard pertaining to equipment, pertaining to skills, and then as our profession progresses, as time progresses, we're actually at the point now where there is specialists for every sort of division of healthcare for pets. And as a general practitioner, I'm working with individuals like you. Um, and usually individuals like you re reside at what we call referral, especially 24 hour facilities where there's a giant hospitals for pets, so to speak. And so um, a lot of clients, even today, even though that, that, that sort of relationship exists, they still don't quite understand um, what's involved with what, I can provide for them and then taking it to the next level or continued care um, with what you guys can provide for them. So, so why don't we set it up as just a scenario of, of I have a certain situation here, whether it's emergent or heavily medically involved or requiring specialty surgery, and then we pass that on to the local referral centers for further care. Sure. So what you're describing is what I call, and I, I didn't coin the phrase, but I embrace it. It's called the triad of care. So what are the three points of that triad? Obviously the pet owner, the primary care doctor and their team, and then when needed, board certified veterinary specialists in whatever discipline is appropriate. One point on the triangle is no more or less important than the others. It's a collaborative partnership between all three entities of that triad. Uh, I think it's important to remember that because some pet owners uh, are nervous about seeking second opinions. They don't wanna upset their family veterinarian. And what I tell them is no primary care colleague that I've ever encountered in the past two decades ever gets upset with a second opinion because everything is shared. We all work together. It's, it's really a fun part of veterinary medicine for me because the thing that drives me, the thing about which I'm most passionate is education. My job, and I truly feel this, my job is to make sure that pet owners understand their pet's health issues as best as I can. And that can be really challenging sometimes, as you know, because of how complicated things get. But I also have a responsibility and a desire to educate my colleagues in primary care, uh, just as much as I love learning from them. There are so many aspects of primary care that I'm like, 
Don't ask me that. I don't know. My own animals have a primary care doctor. I do not know. We need to talk to your primary care doctor. Uh, so that's, again, highlights the fact that one point on that triangle is no better than the other, but we're all involved in this educational process. And that's really why I started criticalcaredvm.com to provide that high level educational information that's written to the level of a pet owner so that they can take it home, digest that information on their own, maybe stimulate some questions that facilitates an amazing conversation with a primary care doctor, or if they've uh, consulted with a specialist, both medical teams, and it helps them feel more comfortable with their pet's disease process. And it's been my experience that when an owner feels comfortable about their pet's healthcare, their pet's healthcare team, they're more likely to heed the medical recommendations. Excellent, excellent way of putting that. Okay, we have to take a short break and listen to some messages, but stay tuned today and every day at, every day, every Saturday at 10 a.m. right here on 107.7 on the FM dial, 1077thebronc.com. The following is an encore presentation of Your Pet Matters with many new shows to come. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Your Pet Matters to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Now, here's a replay of Your Pet Matters with Dr. Michael Takiwa. We're back with Your Pet Matters with Dr. T of Progressive Veterinary Care. Discussing everything you need to know to keep your furry friends happy, healthy, and safe. Only on 1077 The Bronx. How do you get over that hump, though, of, of trust? You know, you mentioned trust. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, another criticalist friend of mine, Garrett Packinger, right? He said, yeah. that, he said that, you know, if I have a long-term client for myself, I've developed this huge emotional bank, right, that I could draw upon and that, you know, we're, it's almost at the point we, we, can, we can definitely see my clients can understand where I'm coming from. I understand where they're coming from. Um, almost have a shorthand as, as we do things. And then an emergent problem happens. And they go to see Garrett and Garrett walks in first time ever meeting this client. Right. And, and since it's a critical situation, we're talking, you know, the estimate is, you know, five days in hospital at blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, so it's one of those things is, is how, how do you, I'd love to hear your, your viewpoint on how you get over that. Um, that sort of, it's almost like a hurdle. It's almost like a door you have to go through with that client. Right. Like clearly they're, they're relying on their, primary care physicians um recommendations so yep. the, the way i do it and I, I don't know if every day practitioner is the same is if i have a relationship with a specialist in the area that's kind of you know where i would guide my client to go my criteria is where do you live where have you been and what kind of experience have you had because i've got like five referral centers around me so um if it's location then clearly there if it's um, somewhere they've had experience with, whether I know anyone there or not, then clearly that they, they have an emotional bank there. And third is if they haven't had a great experience, let's say, then introduce some, a colleague of mine that I do know and, and can make a phone call and, and go from there. But how do you deal with that first time interaction with a client you've never met before? I think there's three major steps. One starts with you. 
One starts with me and one starts with the client. I'll get the client one out of the way. It's because it's the simplest. They just need to be open mm. to hearing a different perspective, to hearing from somebody new. What sets up for a great partnership, a very functional triad of care on the part of primary care colleagues is when clients are adequately prepared. So telling them and letting them know what that referral process is like for the hospital with which you have a relationship. So we're going to forward all of your pet's complete medical records related to this problem. I'm going to speak with that specialist and let them know what my concerns are, where I, I need their help so that we'll have talked. So now the specialist has my medical records, we've communicated, and one of the important things to communicate, like it or not, is cost. I don't know any specialist that doesn't give a primary colleague a verbal guesstimate for what they're thinking may be going on. And to give that client the information before they come over to the referral hospital is so exceedingly helpful, I can't underscore, bold, italicize it enough. Referral medicine, specialty medicine is more expensive than primary care. That's just a fact. The hospitals have higher overhead, so costs go up, and it's just a fact of the real world. There's no judgment on anybody's part for families if they can't afford it. But one of the things that guts me is when owners come over and they spend $150, $200 of money for a consult, we present them with an appropriate treatment plan, and there's no way on the planet at that moment in time that they can do anything. And I know that I would have spoken to the colleague and said, based on what you're describing, Here's what I'm thinking, and the average workup for that type of problem is $2,000 to $2,500. Please relay that to the family, and we're ready to see them as soon as they get here or whenever their consultation is. And to, to have them come over and waste, I don't say waste, but know that they're not going to be able to do more, personally, I feel like I've wasted their money. Um, so adequately preparing clients for that trip to the specialty hospital. Um, I think another thing to recognize is at least my experience has been at specialty hospitals. We, we utilize our nurses much more than in primary care. Um, that's not to say that primary care hospitals don't utilize their nurses appropriately. We just use them a lot. Uh, there are, they are a huge part of the healthcare team, at least at my hospital. Uh, quite honestly, most of my clients call for my nurse and not for me because they want to talk to Molly or Megan and not to me. And that's great because they have a great relationship with the nurses and with me. So to let them know that things may be a little bit differently, you're gonna meet uh, a nurse, you're gonna meet assistants, and a lot of the specialty hospitals are also teaching hospitals. So to let them know, you may meet an intern or specialty intern 
or a resident. They're all doctors and they're working with the specialist, but you might need a team of people. And that's a unique experience, especially if they're not expecting it. And then what do I do? How do I approach it? I, I think you've just got to be a good communicator. And that, that's a blanket statement. Uh, and sometimes you can't teach some of the communication skills because it falls under the realm of common sense. Uh, and it's the unteachable skill. Uh, I think you can teach folks some communication skills, but sometimes you're just a good communicator and sometimes you're not. I think I'm a good communicator, in, especially in a, in a consultation room because I, I'm, I'm in the moment. Uh, everybody else in my family is an educator, except for my dad, who was a businessman uh, at all levels, university, elementary, middle school. So all of them told me, think of your exam room like your classroom. You are there to educate and you need to appear confident, knowledgeable, which I'm an introvert. Nobody in this profession ever believes me when I say I'm an introvert because I lecture so much and I love doing it, but I get my energy not from other people. I have to come home after a day of consults and energized by myself. I have to plug into the alone battery, so to speak. And a lot of veterinarians are that way. Absolutely. And yep. it can be challenging for an introvert to always be on, so to speak, in the exam room. But you just have to be. Uh, I think one of the worst things in an exam room is an exam table. I wish they did not exist. In my exam room, the exam table is a desk. It's where I'm making notes while I'm talking to the family. But when I'm ready to examine the patient, I'm on the floor. Whether it's a cat, Great Dane, Shih Tzu, it doesn't matter, I'm on the floor. And I'll continue to be on the floor uh, as long as I'm physically able to get back up off the floor. <laughs> um, that, you and me are in the same boat, buddy, because I do the same thing. I'm on the floor, and I said, as long as my knees hold out, my knees yeah, are back. I'm exactly. down. <laughs> but awesome. I got to tell you, sometimes you'll go into a room, and I'm sure you've experienced this. Uh, you, you walk into the room. You acknowledge the pet first. Hey, Fluffy. And then you say, oh, you must be mom or dad. Or Then you acknowledge the owners, and I think that's appropriate. Clients love when you actually take an interest in their pet. And most of the time, honestly, I'll just immediately get down on the floor and do my client interview in that location while the animal's just walking around, uh, exploring. And you know, a lot of the times, by the time I'm ready to do my exam, the dog is sitting next to me. Uh, the dog has come up multiple times and has sniffed and licked and they see the positive interaction with the family and they're like, okay, mom and dad are listening to this guy. They're using nice tones of voices. This is okay. This isn't too bad. 
I don't really want to be here because it smells like a hospital, but <laughs> it's okay. And the exam goes off without a hitch. I love to do an exam with owners in the room so I can talk to them about what I'm doing and sometimes even show them what I'm seeing. And it, I think it adds value. It helps them understand what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And then I come up with my treatment plan and my nursing team takes care of that. Well, unfortunately I have medical records to type up. <laughs> no, that's great. That's phenomenal. I, I, I wanted to get to um, a question going back to, to you know, that, um, that question about cost. What, what's your view about pet insurance? I would say I am one of the most ardent cheerleaders for pet insurance. I can't speak to the value of pet insurance for preventive care issues because I don't do preventative care. I will tell you that for emergency purposes and for complicated medical or surgical cases, it's life-saving or I, I have seen it be life-saving for families. And if families can, can afford a life insurance, or a pet life insurance, a pet insurance policy that works within their means, and it can help them allow a veterinarian and their team to provide the level of care that that pet needs, hallelujah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Again, we're, we're in the same boat there. I think that uh, um, it's like any insurance, it's there when you absolutely need it. And it does prevent um, unnecessary or, or difficult situations to occur um, with pet health. Okay, we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back with our wonderful discussion. The following is an encore presentation of Your Pet Matters with many new shows to come. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Your Pet Matters to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Now, here's a replay of Your Pet Matters with Dr. Michael Takiwa. We're back with Your Pet Matters with Dr. T of Progressive Veterinary Care, discussing everything you need to know to keep your furry friends happy, healthy, and safe. Only on 1077 The Bronx. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm having a wonderful discussion. That's awesome. It, it's funny, I, you know, and I wanted to also talk to you. It, it was curious because you said you always want to be a vet at the age of five. So you said your dad's a business person. So you said you, you've got medical, human medical people, you've got educators. So are you the first veterinarian, the one and only veterinarian in the family? or I, I am the you? only medical person in the family. I am the only veterinarian. It's funny because my... Uh, my paternal grandfather wanted to be a veterinarian and decided to become a hydrologist. My dad wanted to become a veterinarian and then became a businessman. So third time's a charm. <laughs> third time's a charm, I guess, is what they would say. And I love what I do. There are days that I'm frustrated. There are days that I'm exhausted. But when it comes down to it, what could I see myself doing day in, day out for 30, 40 years? Taking care of sick animals. Awesome, man. 
And what, what advice would you give to those young vets? So there's a lot of talk about, you know, we're living in a world of, uh, of the stress issues, um, wellness, um, and a lot of it is financially um, taxing. What, what's, your, what's your advice for someone thinking of entering the profession, but they're worried about those aspects? Uh, well, a lot of people may not like what, I, what I'm going to say is, but right now I don't know if I can strongly advocate for becoming a veterinarian who is not going to own a practice or who is not going to become a specialist from a financial perspective. Um, that's not because I don't respect primary care colleagues by any stretch of the imagination, but when you look at the cost of veterinary education and uh, average salary of a primary care doctor, it's hard to justify that uh, debt burden. It's very different with practice ownership. It's very different with a specialist's salary and the other opportunities that are afforded simply by being a specialist and getting to, you know, for example, travel the world and lecture. If you want to become a specialist or have a desire to be a practice owner, go for it. It's still going to be tough and it's still going to be a bumpy, challenging road, but <clears throat> to me, it's been very rewarding. I think other people going through school need to also recognize that there are other aspects of the veterinary profession besides clinical practice. We need veterinarians in industry. We need veterinarians in government. Those are some underfilled positions and they're all over the place. So people who have an interest in public health and epidemiology, uh, opportunities abound. If you like pharmacology and developing novel therapies, opportunities abound. So don't necessarily narrow your narrow ones dreams to clinical practice because there's so much that can be done. Hell, I've even thought about going into industry uh, just because of, I guess what you said, that DNA that we all have of being challenged to do something different and new. There's just a lot, but I, I, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I would go into it with the intent of being a primary care doctor. Yeah, the only exception I can think there, um, the, the whole relief vet program, a lot of these relief sure. vets, actually, they do well. And if they, they yeah, do very so, well. Yeah. Relief um, vets I, do very I would well. say um, emergency medicine, not even being a boarded specialist in emergency and critical care. Wow. Talk about a true national shortage, both in rural areas and in suburban and urban areas. Everywhere. There's such a lack of emergency doctors. And it's not because we're not willing to pay them well. We're willing to pay very well. It's just that nobody seems to want to do emergency medicine anymore. And uh, it's reaching a crisis situation, to be quite honest. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And I, I don't know, I, you know, I've been thinking about that. Well, we had a local um, referral center that was dying for emergency vets on a Sunday. They couldn't get any filling. And so 
uh, one of my associates, he used to own a practice. We joked, oh, yeah, I'll do half a day. You do the other half. <laughs> you, want, you want to make five grand for six hours? <laughs> it's like, it's, exactly. like, it's, like, it's, it's uh, I, I, I don't understand it because when I look at, uh, you know, I did a little bit of emergency before I went out. And it's, it's like I looked at it as experience. So just that simple fact that I'm not seeing these young new grads just doing a year or two of emergency, that would just help cover the the need alone, oh, man. Right? You hit the nail on the head. I mean, there are a lot of referral and emergency hospitals with criticalists there to back you up and be a resource and other specialists to back up and be resources uh, that are asking emergency doctors to pull 12 to 14 shifts every four weeks. And those folks can easily make over $150,000 a year. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, man, if you have any remote uh, inclination <laughs> toward emergency medicine, you can start paying off those school loans right. pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, right? You look at it that way, right? It's, you don't have to look at it as a long-term uh, thing. And, and a lot of uh, the the larger groups out there uh, in our profession have even developed, for lack of a better term, mentorship programs for new grads to to get them comfortable. Because we don't want to throw anybody to the wolves. I mean, we have lives at the end of these decisions. We want to make sure that we're doing best by them. So a lot of hospitals are providing professional development and on-site training not an internship, so to speak, but more of a mentorship to bring people up to speed and make sure they're comfortable over a six to nine month period. Make it a crap load of money. They're working I mean, well and they make a buttload of money. <laughs> yeah, if I could go back in time, I'd be doing that now. You know, it's like, it's now. Yeah, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. It's uh, you know, thirty thousand dollars for an internship in the New York metro area. That's what I dealt with. You know, it's like, ah. Eat a lot of ramen, right? A lot of ramen. Damn it. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, Chris. Great conversations go so fast, and this has been a great conversation. You, do you know what I noticed about you? You're a very good listener. I tend to ramble a little bit and I can tell that you're just listening and taking it in. And if, if that's the approach you take with your clients, I can see why your clients, well, you're, sit, you're sitting on the floor, you greet the pet, you're sitting on the floor with them and you're a good listener. You, you must have a massive following. I don't mean to sound disingenuous, but you know, I just love what I do. Yeah, that's great. That's you the just, most important thing. You just got to love what you do. That's the most important thing. Okay, well, you know, time's up, and uh, it was great talking to you. I think what we should do is why don't we why don't we revisit a discussion in a few months because there's always yeah. tons of topics. Like I, I think your latest video was the Larpar one, right? I saw is that the Larpar? One? Yeah. <laughs> so there's yeah. there's tons of tons of uh, medical topics we could go on, but I think what you what you provided us today is a great insight into um, the profession, great insight into. Um, any developing uh, veterinary students out there can get some great advice. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is do, do a little emergency work. <laughs> 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 no, but if you're sitting there and, uh, and, and they could have someone like you as a mentor, I think that'd be phenomenal. Well, you know, we did, did you talk about the emergency. We, one of the groups that I work with 
one of their newer full-time attending veterinarians left a full-time position in shelter medicine to join an emergency team full-time. She's going to continue living her life with her husband as if she's still working in shelter medicine. Wow. And she is working with her new salary and just paying down loans like nobody's business. And it's, yeah. it's amazing because she's a phenomenal clinician. And to see her confidence just skyrocket. She practices amazing medicine. And knowing that, uh, yes, her schedule has changed because emergency is certainly different than shelter med. But it was the right choice for her and her family to do it. I don't think she'll stay in emergency medicine long term. And that's okay because right now she's made a change that's working for her. Mm. And then I know she loves shelter medicine. I hope one day she rejoins a shelter team and can fulfill her passion there again in a financially healthier yeah. scenario. I think it's yeah, great. That's what it's all about. It's, it's like you, you, we all love what we're doing, um, but if you can do it and, and just have a livable, um, be able to live, right? Be able to right. live. So the, so the yep. time outside the practice, you can live your life and get those experiences, whatever it is. I think that's, that's hugely important, hugely important. Yeah, but you've been an incredible wealth of knowledge. I keep on thinking key words you use. You use the triad of care. We talked about communication, um, you know, just the great advice you gave to the students and um, everything like that. Phenomenal. Oh, I appreciate it. it. Communication is, uh, that's something about which I'm very, very passionate. You know, sometimes it's little nuances. How many times a day do you say to a client, does that make sense? It's normal, right? That's a normal, logical question. I'm going to challenge you to change it to, did I explain that okay? You're asking for the same information. Right. But here's the subtlety. No pet owner on the face of the planet is going to admit when they don't understand something. And so you risk them not understanding their pet's health care to the best of your ability. When you ask them, did I explain it okay? You know they're gonna tell you if you didn't do something right. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, that's so a great that way. Little subtle nuance really that's makes a awesome. difference. And that's the game of communication. That is awesome. And with that, we'll, we'll, we'll say goodbye. So how can, how can people get a hold of you, Chris? Uh, they can get a hold of me by email at criticalcaredvm at gmail.com or they can visit my website send me a message through there. The website is www.criticalcaredvm.com. Thanks so much, Chris. And remember everyone, love your pet like they love you unconditionally. Have a great day. That was Your Pet Matters with Dr. T of Progressive Veterinary Care. You can tune in right here every Saturday at 10 a.m. Or to hear more right now, you can go to 1077thebronc.com slash yourpetmatters, where you can download past episodes as podcasts on your favorite platform like Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Your Pet Matters is underwritten by Progressive Veterinary Care, 390 County Road, Route 518, Skillman. For more information online, it's progressiveveterinarycare.com. We'll see you next time, only on 1077 The Bronx.